As our senior pastor is away with his family, uh, we begin today our elder-led series, Summer in the Psalms, Part 2. So I've been enjoying the show, The Chosen, which is a creative adaptation of the life of Christ and those who lived around him. And in one of these episodes, we meet Mary of Magdala. To put it lightly, her life is in turmoil and chaos. We also meet Nicodemus, who in contrast enjoys a very prestigious life. Through a set of circumstances, the two are brought together in one scene where Nicodemus is to help Mary. However, the words and performance of his ceremony are ineffective in ending the chaos that surrounds Mary's life. As she's on the brink of giving up, Mary meets Jesus. And he says to her, you are mine. Afterwards, Mary is seen in the daylight, smiling and laughing with other women, no longer in turmoil. Word gets to Nicodemus, and he comes to find her to ask her what has happened. And she tells him, I have been redeemed. You know, we don't use that word much in our day and time, but it means to be bought back, to be set free. Today, we're looking at Psalm 25 that teaches us prayer on being set free. So if you would, we'll turn together to Psalm 25 to read it. Psalm 25 of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me, for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenants, his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him he will instruct in the way he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenants. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me, and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and trouble, and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. O oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. When problematic is life's theme. When problematic is life's theme, pray. From the very get-go, we see that this psalm is a prayer. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. 
Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. The psalmist is verbally expressing his posture and his intention. As partakers in this psalm, when we read it, we get a sense right away how raw these emotions are. There's no metaphor about deers or trees, no allusions to imagery of green pastures or dark valleys. It's straight to God, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. But what this prayer lacks in metaphor, it makes up for in creative design. Psalm 25 is an alphabetical acrostic, much like Psalm 119. Even on our English translations, we can see that there are 22 verses to correspond with the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. But what makes this psalm so interesting and complex is that even though it uses the alphabet to shape its formation, it moves along with repeating and corresponding themes to form patterns of verses. Three verses, then four verses, three verses, one verse, three verses, four verses, three verses. Did you catch that? Three, four, three, one, three, four, three. And with all this complex structure, there's an overarching element of teaching us to pray through life's problems by way of example and instruction. Example and instruction. And its starting point is shame. After declaring trust in God, the psalmist asks that he not be put to shame. In true Hebrew poetic fashion, we can pick up what he means by shame is that his enemies will not be exalted over him, that they will not prosper when he is made low, that his status in life will not be as one made out to be a victim. The starting point, as anyone who has suffered in this life knows, is seeing the direct results of the suffering. In fact, it is seeing the suffering in and of itself. And when we do, we often begin by asking God, why? The psalmist here is no different. He's asking God to not let this happen. Don't let my enemies win. Don't let them get better of me. I trust in you, God, and it doesn't make sense to let this happen. Those who trustingly wait on you, God, will not be put to shame, but instead those who are wantonly treacherous will be, right? Those who are needlessly faithless, violent without cause, we see the psalmist here with raw emotion cry out to God for justice when faced with the problems of life. What does he do? He prays. He does so because prayer grants freedom to our soul. It's hard to face moments where we witness what in treachery, pointless suffering. It's especially difficult to face those moments when they're directed at us, is it not? And those close to us? Our family just recently experienced a form of wanton treachery. While we were here at the church on Thursday, I got a call from our neighbor, and he told me that a dog got into our bunny pen and that our bunnies didn't make it. He graciously volunteered to clean it up. My mind, though, in hearing those words, I thought, oh my goodness, what, what's there to clean up? What kind of horror scene awaits our family upon our return? I told him I'd be there soon. And so going through my mind as I was driving home are all these animal nature shows that I've seen throughout the years. 
They're animals. It's, it's what they do. Predators and prey. It's the way of the world. But thankfully, when I got to the house, the scene was much different than what I was imagining. Two of the four bunnies made it safe into their burrow they dug this past year. And there was no mess like what I had pictured in my mind. Even though it was not as bad as I thought it was going to be, I could not stop thinking about these words. Wanton treachery. Senseless violence. The dog was just having a sport of it. It didn't do it for survival or, or to get food. It was just wanton treachery. You know, sidebar. How animalistic when, when we as humans act in kind, diminishing others for our own gain. But nevertheless, it was a, a long night of getting our remaining two bunnies into a safer enclosure. And that night, like every night, our eight-year-old daughter has to pray before bed. And this night in that regard was no different. But as she prayed, she asked God to heal our hearts. That's a lot of wisdom from an eight-year-old. She didn't pray that God would bring retribution to these dogs. She didn't pray that somehow God would restore life to the bunnies as we did for the lightning bugs that she squashed when she was four. No, she, she turned to her God with whom she knows loves her and asked him to heal her heart. In her own way, she said to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. She prayed because prayer grants freedom to our soul. When problematic is life's theme, when pathways and provisions are sparse. When pathways and provisions are sparse, pray. There's a point in the midst of our suffering when we shift from asking why and we start asking what. The psalmist did this when he wrote, Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. The usage of these words, paths and ways, is very reminiscent of wisdom literature, like Proverbs or Job. As such, what should readily come to our mind is viewing things with God's perspective. Amidst Job's suffering, his acquaintances were telling him it was because of his sin that he was suffering. Job wasn't having it. He thought himself to be righteous and, and that their argument was not valid. So when God shows up and he's going to declare a winner of their debate, who does he choose? Neither. God says to Job, were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Do you have my perspective, Job? Have you traveled in my path? Do you look ahead and know the way that I go? Job's answer is obviously no, as ours would be. We need instruction. We need truth. We need to know how to even ask for those things. The psalmist is leading us in how to pray by asking God to lead him how to live. Teach me, Lord. Change my perspective. Of all the so-called gods, you are the God who saves, so I wait for you. The psalmist even gives a comparison of of God and himself. 
Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. He says, I'm like a youth and wild living compared to God who has been faithfully loving from ancient times. John Goldingay says it this way, that the suppliant is a youngster compared with Yahweh and makes that part of the basis for an appeal for compassion. In other words, a recognition that my ways are the ways of an ignorant child, but your ways, O God, are true. So when you think of me, God, do so according to your faithful loving and for your goodness. I wait for you to teach me. And in the midst of suffering, the psalmist now asks, What am I to learn here? Bart Hansen, who is a part of the Ransom Heart Ministries, he speaks about his personal experience with his exact question. Bart suffered from Guillain-Barre syndrome. It's a, it's a rare disorder in which your body's immune system attacks your nerves. He's going on 20 years of suffering from the effects resulting from this syndrome. His story is that from several injuries, he had to have back surgery. And while recovering, uh, unbeknownst to him, he picked up a flu virus. And then one morning, he woke up immobile. Medical investigations underway, they found a towel that was left in his body from the surgery. So assuming he's having massive infection, they began treating him for it. He lost 50 pounds while doctors were trying to fight the infection. But what doctors came to recognize was that when he picked up the flu virus, his immune system could not differentiate between the virus and his nervous system. This is what's called Guillain-Barre syndrome. It can be relatively short or it can be prolonged and begin shutting down organs until death. Bart was treated, and after two years, his condition began to level off. However, he now has chronic nerve pain. He says that it feels like his flesh is on fire, and he compares it to the pain that ensues after putting your hand on a red-hot burner. His hands and his feet are hypersensitive, and besides the constant pain, sleeplessness is a battle. Even dragging sheets across his feet will wake him up in spikes of agony. He describes his condition as relentless and exhausted. As he continues to share his story, he talks that for a while, his prayers were asking God why. But eventually, in reading scripture about sharing in the fellowship of suffering, he started to ask what? What are you doing in this, God? What are you up to? The reason he asked that question is because prayer grants freedom to our soul. So what do we do when we face the difficulties in life? What do we do when we lose a child? We pray. What do we do when every day is a struggle to get by? We pray. What do we do when what we hoped would be our future dissipates? We pray. 
It's not difficult in the midst of suffering to start feeling alone and abandoned. It's easy to be convinced that God does not love us when we're suffering. We ask, where is God? And the darkness answers back, nowhere. And soon the weight of that feeling will start to suffocate and destroy our hope, our love, our peace. But when we pray... The God of heaven hears us, and even though our suffering may or may not go away, we are not crushed by the weight of our own misery because prayer grants freedom to our soul. When problematic is life's theme, when pathways and provisions are sparse, pray a prayer of praise. Pray a prayer of praise. The psalmist's very understanding of God is guiding his prayer. As he just walked us through his personal prayer response, he now confesses the beliefs that give him the foundation in order to do so. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right, and he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenants and his testimonies. His belief in God as being upright and one who leads is what drives him to pray for God's leading. His belief in God as being one of faithfulness and steadfast love is what moves him to ask for that love to be shown to him. You might have noticed that the verbiage of this part of the psalm is different than what we have read so far. No longer is this a personal plea directed towards God, but it is statements of truth. Statements of doctrine about God toward us, the reader, the participants. Our belief about God is integral to how we pray, and as such, Psalm 25 leads us in understanding this. It's used as part of temple worship, and this psalm is one that leads people to pray through pain. The major component of that is to praise God for who He is Praise Him for His goodness, thanking Him for being the Good Shepherd, declaring His faithfulness and His ever-present loving-kindness to those He calls His own. Strikingly enough, those He has called, those He has chosen, are those who understand that they need Him, those who humbly know that we are sinners, mark-missers, oath-breakers. These are the ones that pray. When problematic is life's theme, when pathways and provisions are sparse, pray a prayer of praise. Pray a pardon to bring God glory. Pray a pardon to bring God glory. Moving right back into the personal plea directed toward God here in verse 11, the psalmist wrote, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Having already established the fact that the psalmist Praise for what he believes God can accomplish. He asks for his guilt to be pardoned. And even though his guilt is great, he believes God to be greater. And that in the pardon, God's greatness will be all the more evident. And how much more is God's greatness evident when we read in the Gospel of John that God loves the world, all the people so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. They will find pardoned. They will find freedom. 
they will find redemption, redeemed from a life that has to take from others in order to have power and purpose to survive. This survival of the fittest life is the very net that is around the psalmist's feet mentioned in verse 15. And since his feet are stuck, his whole existence is stuck. This is what the pardon is for, a releasing from the net. You know, I find it incredibly interesting how what happened to Adam and Eve is repeated over and over in various stories in the Old Testament. God created man. Male and female, he created them to be his image. He gave them dominion and authority over the animals that were created chronologically before they were. The first will be last, then the last will be first kind of thing. But in their failure, they gave their authority away by obeying an animal, which specifically was the image of evil. And Adam and Eve were told, you can be gods if you reach out and take it. And they did just that. With that one move, what we were meant to be as humans, God's image, we became something less. We became animalistic, wantonly treacherous, usurpers of resources and power, domineering and ambitious, seeking gain through taking from others. But fast forward to Jesus, who calls himself the Son of Man, the Son of Adam. He lives a drastically different kind of life, one that does not take but gives. And he came in a way that was not like us, for we are born into this animalistic way. And even though our curse of death is not his to own, he willingly gave his life. He willingly took our sin. He willingly took the punishment of a criminal so that we can be pardoned. By the grace of Jesus Christ, we are invited into the redemptive process. And where Adam and Eve failed to be the image of God, through the blood of Christ, we are now set free from seeking our own authority and power and control. And now through the sharing in the fellowship of suffering, we can say, No, God, I don't like this one bit. Nonetheless, not my will be done, but yours. Are you beginning to feel the passion of this psalm here in verse 11? It's poetry. We're meant to feel it. It causes us to reflect on the struggle of life and how we, we come here on Sunday morning to sing about how good God is, knowing He is our Savior, to then walk out that door and immediately be hit in the face with problems of this world. Do you feel it? And in the midst of our indignation of the whole of it, we come face to face with our own guilt, yelling at our children, vengefully calling out a co-worker's issue, displaying hostility towards our spouse because whatever. And the only thing left to do, the only sensible thing left to do is cry out to the Lord, pardon my guilt for it is great. When problematic is life's theme, when pathways and provisions are sparse, pray a prayer of praise. Pray a prayer of pardon for God's glory. Pray a prayer to proclaim. Pray a prayer to proclaim. In keeping in the established form of the psalmist returns to theology and declarations, not only of God this time, but those who are his, he wrote, Who is the man who fears the Lord? 
Him he will instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. You know, I'm going to admit that this uh, this first strophe in this section is it's a challenge for me to wrap my head around. It's asking a question about how do we identify someone as being a follower of God. I would expect the answer to be a list of some sort, whether short or list or a long list, something. For example, who who's a man who plays sports? Well, typically, he's in good shape, has good balance, and understands competitive play. I tried to come up with, with something that, that would be an inverse of that to, to bring confusion to that statement in, in comparison to, to what this verse states, but I, I couldn't even do that. I understand the logic too much of uh, that if someone's good at sports, there's going to be some sort of actions and characteristics of that person testifying as much. But who is the man who fears the Lord? Him? Will he instruct? It pushes against the parameters of how I view God's people. But I think maybe that's the point. That we'll know who fears God by what God does, not so much by what the person does. Proverbs 3.12, For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Psalm 103.13, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. God's people are marked by God's Spirit so that our souls abide in well-being, for he makes known to us his will. And thus we are called friends of God. Jesus said, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. God delights in bringing us into his majestic oneness, And this is shown through his instruction, provision, and understanding that he gives to us, especially during the times of suffering. For our God did not stand by idly with a calloused heart as Jesus was crucified. No, we read of the heavens going dark and thunder and the tearing of the temple curtain. Our God knows suffering And when we share in that suffering, we can know him better. Bart Hansen also shares about a golf game where he happened to meet someone else who had suffered from Guillain-Barre syndrome as well. And as they talk, they ask one another, what's your worst day? A new pair of shoes. Oh yeah, and socks. Okay, what's your best day? Lying in the sun. Bart then explained that there's all these other guys who saw this language that they had together and they didn't understand it. But Bart and this other gentleman, they had a a companionship, a fellowship of suffering. These are the ones that pray. When problematic is life's theme, when pathways and provisions are sparse, pray a prayer of praise. Pray a prayer of pardon for God's glory. Pray a prayer to proclaim when plights and predicaments abound. When plights and predicaments abound, pray. 
with all that has transpired and all that is understood, the psalmist is really zeroing in on what is desired most as he wrote, My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Understandably so, the psalmist knows that not only is he dealing with his suffering, he's dealing with the wickedness of his own heart. And it is that wickedness that compounds his misery, doubling the troubles of his heart. But his true desire is to not find just release from the trouble, but to look upon God and for God to look back so that he no longer is stuck in despair, no longer afflicted by loneliness, no longer growing more and more depressed, but instead is given the forgiving embrace of God himself. As Mr. Hansen would say, the psalmist is turning the corner to get his eyes off his own suffering and get his eyes on God. As my daughter would say, heal our hearts, God. And as I would say, Lord Jesus, help me work in a manner that is worthy of your gospel. I too well understand the allure of aptitude to work hard, to do well, to promote, and the subsequent battle to prove you made the right choice in hiring me. So much of it was subtle and at face value just good old-fashioned work ethic. But what I did not see happening was how in my mind everything started to become my effort and my talent and how I was better. But then, some corrective suffering happened. I was mischaracterized in a report, and that act alone brought in so much fear of losing my job, concern with how how do I gain any type of promotion or raise now, the blessings I felt in, in, in being given the promotion in the first place, and seeing how God orchestrated it was not there anymore, replacing the thankfulness with fear of losing it all. If I didn't think I earned it, how ridiculous to think I'm going to maintain it. The temptation to put others down in response to get ahead was so strong. That animalistic urge to be wantonly treacherous. What do I do at that point? What do we do in times like this? What does Psalm 25 teach us to do? You tell me. Yes, pray. Pray. Because prayer grants freedom to our soul. So what hardships are you facing right now? What troubles are weighing your heart down? What treachery is seeking to take captive your soul and draw you away from the love of God? Pray. Pray because prayer grants freedom to our soul. When problematic is life's theme, when pathways and provisions are sparse, pray a prayer of praise. Pray a prayer of pardon for God's glory. Pray a prayer to proclaim 
when plights and predicaments abound, when pain is the matter at hand. When pain is the matter at hand, pray. There's no other place for the psalmist to go, for Yahweh is his refuge. Thus, he wrote, Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Our family watched the uh, Mowgli movie a a week or so ago. It's a live-action Jungle Book remake. And in one scene, the large snake Ka asks Mowgli if he's scared. And as she slithers and coils around him, Ka then said, Sometimes fear is the only sensible thing. I think that's similar to how the psalmist prays now. The only sensible thing in light of his enemies is to seek, trust, and wait for God. He prays, look at my enemies and how they hate me with violent hatred. Not only do my enemies seek my destruction, but they do so with a relentless and reckless pursuit. They are the epitome of those who are wantonly treacherous. Although the psalmist returns to requests to not be put to shame, there's a a focal change, a growth in spiritual maturity. For he knows that it is his soul that needs guarded, and that his enemy is not only those who seek his destruction outwardly, but that which seeks to destroy him inwardly as well. Fully entrenched in the process of prayer, knowing it grants freedom to the soul, the psalmist personifies integrity and uprightness, a.k.a. God, to preserve him. And he is resolved to wait until such deliverance is to come. We are instructed in the book of Ephesians to put on the whole armor of God. For we do not fight against flesh and blood, but against that which would destroy us inwardly to take up the whole armor of God so that we may stand strong, that we may persevere. And this fight against the enemy, it's, it's not direct. We win by waiting. Our armor is truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, and the word of God, all of which are given to us by God himself. The Apostle Paul told the church in Ephesus to put all of this on that God is handing them. And then what they are to do is pray. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplications, making supplications for all the saints, and pray also for me. Because the Apostle Paul knew as well that prayer grants freedom to the soul. When problematic is life's theme, When pathways and provisions are sparse, pray a prayer of praise. Pray a prayer of pardon for God's glory. Pray a prayer to proclaim when plights and predicaments abound, when pain is the matter at hand. The last verse in Psalm is different than the rest. It isn't a personal plea directed towards God. It, It isn't statements, teaching. The last line gives a place and a purpose for the psalm to the collective so that all the people of God can pray, redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. So that we here can pray, 
redeem harvest decatur, O God, out of all its troubles. Set us free, Lord. Set us free. 